Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. The First Vision Bicentennial. It's the 200th anniversary of the First Vision proclaimed by Joseph Smith, which laid the foundation for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here's Mary Richards on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. It is early spring in Palmyra, New York, in the year 2020. A breeze goes through the bare brown trees and an occasional bird call. 200 years ago, a young boy entered this grove of trees to pray and eventually changed history. Throughout this hour, we'll learn more about Joseph Smith's first vision and its impact. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints bought this property around 100 years ago, eventually letting the trees grow more naturally and giving tours of the Smith family log home and frame house. Thousands of people come every year to see this grove for themselves, many hoping to feel some of the same sacredness and connection to heaven. Not far from the sacred grove is the Hill Camorra Visitor Center, where I sat down with Elder Mark Clay, an Area 70 authority for North America Northeast. You know, it's, it's, you just recognize very quickly when you're here what a blessing it is. And when you travel around, as I do in state conferences around the Northeast, you talk to people or people in Salt Lake and, and, um, and talk with reverence, as we all do, about the sacred grove. And, and it always come up, well, I was there, you know, Two years ago, I was there five years ago. I was there for pageant. I was there for the historical sites. And and they'll ask me, so how often do you go? I, you know, I have meetings regularly in Palmyra, and I almost always take the time to go for a walk in the, in the sacred grove. I go regularly and just pause in the grove and feel the spirit and, and commune with the Lord. And, um, it's such a blessing. It's such a blessing. What do you hope in this bicentennial year that we are getting from learning about Joseph again in the first vision and that we can take forward with us after this? I hope in, I hope in it we, we really just think through the, the uh, what's the word, uh, the awesome, it's really the awesome basic event of that, that, that a young boy, um, age 14, with, with limited education, um, like each of us at in a, some point in life is searching to find answers. And uh, whether you're born in the church or you're not, you're still at some point, you've got to find those answers. Yeah. And he had, he had enough faith and enough courage 
and enough question to to go find a quiet spot in the grove, hoping for, for some guidance, but not expecting anything like what happened to him. When Joseph Smith entered the woods, he'd been worried for quite some time about the state of his soul. That was the first question he asked before he asked about which church to join. This was during a period of religious revival in upstate New York, with vastly different teachings among the different sects. BYU professor of ancient scripture, Carrie Muelstein, explains. There are some larger religious debates happening around him and even within his own family. So poor Joseph doesn't know where to turn because his mother will have a different opinion than his father, and uh, one of the ministers he talks to will have a different opinion than another minister, and uh, and they're both about how to be saved and very different views about how to be saved. And you can see this young boy who earnestly wants to be saved saying, I can't take a chance on this, but I can't figure out how, how to make sure I'm doing it right. Because there are so many lessons we can get from the first vision about the Godhead and about all these relationships with man. But he answers his question, maybe, and that yeah. to me is such a beautiful part of all of this. Yeah, in, in fact, um, there were a number of things that, that stood out to me that I'd never noticed before. One of them was uh, Joseph Smith's integrity. Uh, and uh, as you put the various accounts together, you get this idea that his family was having the experience of what we call getting religion, right? Standing up and feeling the spirit and professing their belief, and people around him were. And he wanted to have that experience. But he wasn't feeling it, and he was not willing to fake it for them or for himself. That integrity, even as a 12- or 13-year-old, is impressive. Muelstein's colleague at BYU, Stephen Harper, has studied the first vision extensively as well. Both professors and authors want everyone to read all nine versions or accounts that we currently have of the first vision. They are available in the Gospel Library or at josephsmithpapers.org. And that's a way of appreciating how well-documented the vision is, how hard Joseph worked to try to remember and record it for us. It was a struggle for him to do so. It was not easy. Two of the accounts are autobiographies, and when he starts those, he says, this is not going to sound good. I barely got educated at all. So this is a dilemma for him. You know, he's got this vision to record, and he's not adequate to record it. And how do you even put it into words? Indeed. Something that was so powerful. He said it defied all description. So there are not words equal to it, but he worked hard to try to record it in a way that at least felt somewhat true to, to his experience. And in different times in his life, he's telling the story to somebody different, and so he might emphasize something a little bit different to them. He certainly does. I've I've um, theorized that the main determinant of the, the the accounts, like the the reason the accounts are both similar and different from each other, is because this will sound simple, but it's really it's not simplistic. They are they are different memories of the same experience. Sheena Perrin started a group called Seek Christ Daily, and she runs it from her home in Idaho. She has learned new things through studying the first vision this year. We don't always get our answers right away, but Joseph Smith's mother, I mean, she was trying to find what church to join. I mean, she was asking that question for 20 years. So, yes, like we have to remember that. We might not receive an answer like Joseph Smith, or it might not come right away. But I just love the first vision because it's such a great reminder that 
Heavenly Father is real. He loves us, and he cares about us and wants to help us. She says one thing her family did was listen to the Joseph Smith Papers podcast. And the host of that podcast is church historian Spencer McBride. He also works with the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He says the different tellings of what happened teach us a lot about Joseph Smith himself. He always understood it as a personal conversion moment. This is where he knew for sure that God lived. This is when he knew for sure that he could be forgiven of his sins through Jesus Christ. But it's only with time that he begins to fully comprehend that this wasn't just about his personal conversion. It was a vital step in the restoration of the gospel. I think of the 1832 account of the first visions, the earliest one. It's a raw account. It's a rough draft of a history that was never published. And here we get a young boy wanting to connect with heaven, wanting forgiveness for his sins. And that speaks to me a lot as part of the core of our religious experience. Why does everything else matter? It's because we want to know that God lives and we want to know that he loves us. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, the other questions answered by the first vision matter very much. Um, but I think at different times of our lives, different aspects resonate more than others. And, and for me right now, you know, this, this desire to connect to heaven, I think is something I always want. Um, but, but in this bicentennial year, it's been a focus of mine that, you know, like Joseph Smith, what can I do to better understand my standing before God. Coming up next, an invitation from a prophet today, the lessons we learn from the first vision and its impact in our lives. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to... Give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In East Rochester, New York, 30 minutes or so from the Sacred Grove, Melissa Smith teaches early morning seminary to high schoolers in the Rochester 3rd and 4th wards. Only they haven't been able to meet in person for a while because of the coronavirus. This is a time when there's a lot of fear and worry. But we can be confident that uh, God remembers us. This bicentennial year, Sister Smith has been teaching the Book of Mormon curriculum with an eye on the first vision. All of the work that God is doing right now is evidence that he doesn't forget anybody. And I want them to feel that personally. I feel like that's one of the big things that Joseph Smith got out of the first vision is just a knowledge that God heard him. Riley Cooney from Seattle was visiting the Sacred Grove with his family on the same March day I was there. It was early spring, yes. kind of like now, wasn't it? It was. And in my mind, I've always envisioned my first visit to the Sacred Grove, seeing green trees. Being from Seattle, I, I, I've seen the videos and photos and paintings. But in doing research, early in the spring of 
1820 would have been uh, late March, maybe early April. And I don't think the trees turn green until about June. So this seemed like a good time to go. What did you think today? Uh, it was really neat. I mean, it was cold, um, a little bit windy, but um, it was neat to be there knowing that something that has changed my life and so many other lives forever happened here 200 years ago. And I definitely um, felt um, the love of God knowing what had happened here and, and knowing what has happened in my life and what can happen in my life. Jeanette Cooney had her testimony strengthened. Growing up, I was taught about the first vision and Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father coming to see Joseph Smith. But it hadn't really, like, sunk in until I got here. You know, like, it, he actually did see them, and they're real, and they, they speak to us, you know? It's going to be okay, and, and I think I came in feeling a lot of uh, stress. I haven't slept well the last few nights, but I left with less of those doubts and more surety that um, God's going to lead us um, through his leaders and through personal revelation, and everything's going to be okay. The year 2020 will be designated as a bicentennial year. President Russell General M. Nelson asked members of the church to study the first vision this conference. bicentennial year and In to the focus on months. the restoration. As historians, We've been looking to 2020 for quite some time. Spencer McBride works on the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He's a church historian, and he produced a podcast on the first vision. One part in the podcast that really resonated with a lot of church members, and especially women, uh, was the story of Lucy Mack Smith waiting 20 years to find the church she was looking for. And she had to be patient with her husband in the process uh, to come along with her. And I think that's the story, again, it, it wasn't well known, but now that it's becoming better known, a lot of people are attracted to that story. It resonates with them. Sheena Perrin of Idaho listened to the First Vision podcast and really connected with the story of Lucy Mack Smith as well. She was trying to find what church to join. I mean, she was asking that question for 20 years. So, yes, like we have to remember that. Perrin runs a site called Seek Christ Daily. At times we can kind of get down on ourselves, like, well, we aren't studying as a family. But I think one of the biggest things we can do is study ourselves and then pray and look for opportunities to teach our children. McBride hopes as people study the first vision this year and the restoration, they'll crave more. As I think about the history that we tell in the podcast, when we talk about the first vision, Yes, it was 200 years ago, and and in many ways, daily life has changed since then, but a lot of that's technological. When we think about the human experience, when we think about Joseph's questions, they're not all that different than the questions we ask today. His desire to connect with heaven is not all that different than our desire to do the same Professor Stephen Harper in the BYU Church History Department says it was hard for Joseph Smith to put into words what happened, and he worked hard to record it in a way that was true to his experience. Notice, for example, he can't call it his first vision. He doesn't run right home and say, Mom, Dad, just had my first vision. Capitalized. Yeah. Which we now do. Second vision will be three and a half years from now. He doesn't have the ability to interpret it in the ways we now do until subsequent experience accumulates for him. And over time, 
uh, comment, many commentators have observed, his accounts, they grow. Uh, some people call that embellishment. I'm okay calling it that as long as you don't have a negative association with that. Because he definitely interprets his experience over time to, to a larger and larger context. Early on, as Richard Bushman observed and others, it's a personal redemption. It's forgiveness for a teenager. And by 1838, when he writes the manuscript history account, or, or has others help him write it, it is the beginning story of the restored church. And those are not antithetical stories, as they've sometimes been presented. Those are not at odds with each other. That's the same story, or two, two questions that are just two two sides of a coin. Here at the Hill Camorra Visitor Center and back on Temple Square in Salt Lake City, they show this video of the first vision, and it's taken from all nine accounts. Immediately, I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so I could not speak. And there's a poignant my lesson BYU professor Kerry Mulstein sees in what happened to Joseph in the grove when he first tried to pray. I have to think about loved ones uh, of my own and students who struggle with uh, depression and anxiety and some of the the things that seem to be a a wave of difficulty for the youth of our day. Joseph Smith goes through uh, these struggles for a long time and then under the attack from Satan and how he can't feel any positive feelings. He only feels this hopelessness and despair that Satan wants to unleash on our youth. Uh, and wants to unleash on all of us, but his perseverance, it it didn't end when Joseph wanted it to end, but it did end because he persevered, and eventually the Lord did deliver him. And that's a message I hope that uh, all those who are struggling will uh, see and resonate with and find, again, a role model in Joseph Smith and a promise of hope from their father. That's the message Sister Smith is trying to get across to the youth in New York. Like this whole chapter is God is just reiterating, I, the Lord, have not forgotten my people. I remember those who are on the Isles of the Sea. If you want to see evidence of God's work, I mean, it's right here in the Book of Mormon, and God remembers everyone. We can't be in Palmyra, New York, speaking of the Restoration and the Book of Mormon without talking about the Hill Cumorah pageant. Coming up next, hear from people whose lives were changed because of it. Every summer for 80-plus years, hundreds of people have stood here on the side of the Hill Cumorah and put on a huge production about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. This July of the year 2020 is scheduled to be the last Hill Cumorah pageant. We knew that things at some point would end. President Neil Pitts is the president of the Hill Cumorah Pageant. We spoke in the Hill Cumorah Visitor Center at the base of the hill where Joseph Smith recovered the golden plates. We also recognize that the world is getting to be a tougher place. And uh, the number one reason that President Nelson had given uh, for the pageant was that we want people to be really working in their home, studying their families. I mean, look at what's happening. Uh, isn't this prophetic? And so I think that uh, recognizing that and that the world is kind of a funny place, you have things going on that uh, are not really helpful to large crowds, right? 
we we fully understand. So for us, it's an opportunity to hold an awesome ending pageant and to kind of end with a bang, if you will. The Pitts are converts to the church, and the pageant had a role in Sister Beverly Pitt's conversion. When I was 16 years old, a non-member invited me to go because I wasn't a member then either. And so we just went to see the pageant, and it really impressed me. I don't remember that much about the Book of Mormon story, but about Joseph Smith, I remembered that and reflected on it. But later on, after we were married and the sister missionaries knocked on our door and started teaching us about Joseph Smith, it was like, yes, you know, it all came flooding back and I knew that he was a prophet. So many Latter-day Saints here have a similar story of being introduced to the gospel through the Hill Cumorah pageant. Elder Mark Clay, an area general 70 for North America Northeast, is one of those people. He had a girlfriend named Kathleen, now sitting beside him as we chatted in upstate New York. We had gone to church a few times, and uh, in the summer, she had said uh, the family's going up to Palmyra to the pageant. And um, so um, wherever my girlfriend was going, you know, that's where you're going. And, uh, right? Right. And, uh, so we, we, it was a rainy Saturday. About halfway through pageant, it just poured. Just started raining again, and it poured. And she and Kath and her family, in short order, went back to the car, and I sat in the rain and watched the rest of the pageant. And, um, it wasn't the only thing involved in my conversion, but it was a, it was a meaningful part of it. You married the girl. Yes. <laughs> It's not just those in the audience that have been changed by the pageant. Many in the large cast and crew say they felt the first spark of testimony here or had their testimony strengthened, their lives changed. Out of this has come lifelong friendships, missions, and marriages. Assistant Director Ward Wright sees those life-changing moments every summer. I can't even tell you the number of times that a mom and dad brought their teenage boy or their teenage daughter kicking and screaming to pageant, right? Yeah. I mean, just like, I don't want to do this. I can't. No, I'm not going to get on the stage. I'm not going to do this. Within two days, within two days, they are fully engaged. And within a week, they're going to their mom and dad and saying, we got to come back next year. We got to come back next year. He has been the battle master for the pageant since 1992. I could tell you story after story of, of boys because that's who I work with, it changed their lives. Totally changed their lives. It's just amazing what pageant does. But it is hard. That first week comes with 14 to 16 hour days of rehearsals, a long drive home to fall into bed, early the next morning start all over. The Johnson family has a 45-minute drive from their home to Palmyra. They've been participating in pageant for many years in the cast and crew. This is the one thing I could find, which goes back to about 1981, probably. And his family. So my mother was actually helping out with making a lot of these costumes. And this is a picture of my older brother. That actually is my suit of armor that I wore in 91. But Ken Johnson might be prouder of his children. Our, our son Spencer, uh, who's serving out in Orem, uh, got to be uh, Battle Nephi one year. So uh, this is him practicing for uh, the boat scene. Oh. So when they're, when they're bringing the boat across. So this is uh, our son Garrett, who's in the 
uh, Bakersfield, California mission. Uh, he was a Lamanite battleman, so he's got his little battle axe and, and uh, scowl going because he's trying to look tough. Write uh, <laughs> the things which ye have seen and all that I have said. The show runs about an hour and 15 minutes with the same recorded track every year done by Orson Scott Card. And that recording stays in the minds of the Johnson family all year. And I really think that that just helps so much to add the realness to a story, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when you're able to portray it, most of the script is quoted directly from the scriptures, especially a lot of the speaking parts. And in my experience, as I've listened to it, or as I've watched it, the most powerful spirit can be felt when it's directly quoting the scripture. Six stakes support the Hillcomora pageant, with many people driving long distances. The Johnsons' ward boundaries cover two large cities, and their children stick out as unique or different at school. You know, we don't have this, the, the same associations that maybe you would find out west. And one of the things that, that I appreciated, especially the first couple of years that we did it, was just watching my kids as they interacted with, you know, 20 in their cast team of their same age with the same beliefs and the same foundations and they were just themselves just to see the the comfort and the the good association that they were able to have and the friends that they just made instantly and they had that bond of the gospel and the love of the Book of Mormon. And this is one reason why everyone is so tired is because all the kids are playing games nonstop. Logan, Reed, and Paige Johnson explain some of the antics that happen over the two weeks. Okay, we're on board. Let's play the silly game. Okay, and so they'd play it. Nine Square is not silly. It's aggressive. It's an aggressive, it's aggressive. game. It's they're, very they're aggressive. Very, the Assassins, that game. Oh, oh, that we are game so competitive for, with that. That game can go for weeks. So, <laughs> we get a popsicle stick with someone's name on it, and it could be like a whole cast team or two different cast teams together. And the bigger the better. So yeah, the bigger the better. The better. Okay. What happens is a girl has to hook arms with a boy, and then you, you're yeah. safe. Yeah, so we start talking to each other. But say I have your oh, name, and you're not, you're not well, talking to anybody. Like I, I stab you. You're dead. I can take your <laughs> popsicle stick. He just killed me. Now he has my popsicle stick and your popsicle stick. And it goes like that. And it's crazy. You see people chasing each other. And the rule is not in devotional and not... In rehearsal. Okay. Or study on shelter, the stage. Or, yeah, stage. Yeah, there are places that are off limits. Like, that gets intense. But there's also a ton of service opportunities during July. Hundreds of Latter-day Saint youth weeding, lifting, moving, mowing, cleaning, gardening, and doing anything needed for community partners. That's such a unique opportunity to have, you know, 800 people all in one spot with... Sorry, I got... To all be working for a common goal and to have just a, a Zion-like community. The participants of the pageant, I don't think it will be the same. I don't think it could be the same. President and Sister Pitts explain. And we're pretty yes. well accepted in Palmyra. Mm. I mean, we work with the town folks, the, the mayor, the town supervisor, and all the folks here. Which has been a great blessing. It is. It was kind of a change from, you know, the way it was years ago. So they've been a blessing. The town of Palmyra has been a blessing to us. We work close with the 
community groups, and they think a little bit this is their pageant now, <laughs> but it's ending. <laughs> To give more people the opportunity, President and Sister Pitt say they expanded the cast size this year from around 750 to 850 this year. It's running an extra night as well. It's also a little bit younger of a cast, and they pray about who should be here. When our children were younger, we were in the cast, and that's where I feel people are really sad to see it go because it's such a wonderful experience to bring your family. And over the years, it's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Last year, was it got big again because, oh, we got to go see pageant. And a lot of people thought that was the last year. So I can imagine this year is going to be huge. Yeah, the last. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be, the crowds are going to be large, I think. I hope. Someone who has a unique understanding of this pageant and this area is Justin Bennett. He's a member of the Cayuga Nation, as well as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In our culture, you know, we end up going to the meetings and get to speak to some of the chiefs and some of the history. And there are some things that they discuss regarding this particular location and also some of the history and also some of the records that were kept. He says the tribe in the middle of the longhouse, the Oneidas, are the keepers of the hill. There's nothing that clearly makes the distinction regarding the gold plates, but they do talk about records being hidden up in the earth. You know, I can't help but think that they are referencing records being deposited in this particular area. Bennett says the Hillcomora pageant is so special to him and his family because they see how things are connected and how they all lead back to Heavenly Father. One year they participated, his daughter was in the scene when the Savior comes to America. Arise and come forth unto me. Bennett sees a timely message in that scene. That scene after all the destruction and, and all of a sudden the Savior shows up and, uh, and he's... He's walking with the people and all that concern, all that fear, all that uh, panic and paranoia and perhaps feelings of depression and despair just melt away when he arrives and you realize like everything's going to be okay. And everyone I talked to about the pageant said they understood why this pageant is ending. Because of what's happened in the last year and a half, two years with President Nelson and family-centered, church-supported, it's a logical conclusion. There's too many hours, volunteer hours. I mean, just year-round, I mean, it's about 230,000 volunteer hours. That's a lot of family time that's taken away. Yeah. And it's really, it's hard. I think there's a level of relief as well. So it, yeah. I, I was 13 years uh, doing parking, uh, and it's, it's an important job. It's also a very thankless job we got to understand that he wants us in our homes because he feels, uh, because the Lord feels we need to be strengthen our homes. We are getting back to the style of living that we should be living, and that's where mothers and fathers are teaching the children in their own homes. So with pageant, there are a few things people say are the worst about it. Some people say it's the bugs, the heat, it's the, games, the lack of sleep. The, the worst thing I think, I think about pageant is the last devotional, the last song we sing, which is Till We Meet Again. Yeah. And not a single person isn't crying. There is a special feeling. And here at the Hillcomora, there's a special feeling. Especially when we have 
almost a thousand saints here in the cast and on the staff at the hill. It is just the spirit is tremendous. It's just tremendous, and that's what people will miss, right? It but feels like a Zion community. The spirit of all thousand meeting together won't happen if the as the pageant ends. But these sites continue to carry that spirit, so people can come and visit. But you don't have to be here to have that spirit. That can be anywhere in the world to just kneel down and feel that special feeling that Christ's church was restored on the earth again, you know, and all that that brings. Just tremendous. Coming up next, the worldwide impact of Joseph Smith's first vision 200 years later. From the front door of the Doyle family's home in Provo, Utah, you can see a glimpse of the dining room, and there's a 9 by 6 foot hooked rug hanging on the wall. It shows Joseph Smith kneeling to pray in a grove of trees. I feel like I really am sharing my faith in a visual way. Jennifer Doyle made it by hand. When I thought about working on it, I was feeling like I needed to do something with my craft that was meaningful. And I really wanted to find a way to share the story of Joseph Smith. It took several years. She hand-dyed each piece, cut the fabric, and painstakingly pulled each piece through the canvas. I wanted this to be something that my family understood was really, really important to me. And I wanted it to be a conversation as often as possible. Creating something gave me a way to make it part of our life. Where it could come up and be talked about. Yeah, where it could where it could be talked about, where I think sometimes just visual things tell a story and become something. In your visual memory, in your emotional memory, my kids saw me dragging the large, very heavy uh, project around the house for years because I worked on it on and off for about five years. So they saw me carrying it around and... I worked on it while they practiced the piano, and I worked on it while they ate breakfast, and I worked on it at night when we watched a movie, and I, it was just part of our life. Doyle says this project strengthened her testimony as she focused so much on Joseph Smith. I found myself, I found myself thinking about little things like, what would his face have looked like, or how were his hands, or feeling really humble thinking about those pants kneeling and asking God. Her family has been changed as well, and visitors to their home to see this hooked rug project. My son's friend was sitting at our dining room table, it's hanging in my dining room, and they were doing chemistry together. And he looked up and he said, that's really cool, where'd you get that? And I just had the chance to say, oh, I actually made that. And it was, it's just, it's a way for me to share my testimony without even saying anything. In the BYU Harold B. Lee Library, a painting is on display called The First Visions by Anthony Sweat. He pluralized the title because it takes from all nine versions. To try to have us view it a little bit differently, uh, maybe a little bit more consistently with the historical record. Not that that needs to be, that's not always the point of art, and I understand that. But in my image, for example, I have a big column of yellow fire coming down. We typically portray it as soft white light. But in multiple accounts, as a matter of fact, the very first word Joseph used was, I saw a column of fire. And then he crossed, and then he crossed it out and puts light. But Orson Pratt, um, 
David and I White, multiple ones say that Joseph uses the word fire to describe it. So I wanted in my image to depict more yellow, uh, Old Testament visionary type fire from heaven coming down. Orson Pratt says Joseph thought the whole grove would be consumed in flames. And then it says that the fire or light enveloped Joseph and that he was fearful, but then this fear soon left him. And if you picture it as fire, you can see why you might be a little afraid or a lot afraid. Yeah. And so uh, that's one thing my depiction is trying to do that's a little different than the others. I also don't have the Father and the Son appearing at the exact same time. Right. And um, angels. And then above the sun, I try to depict from the 1835 account, the many angels. I see the axe. The axe uh, from the David and I White account uh, on the right. And then on the far left, you see Satan being cast out, a dark line kind of being pushed out uh, by the fire in the grove. Because it's important to note that there was that presence there. Yeah. Sweat says many church members are used to seeing similar artwork of the first vision. There's a symbol we adopt of a boy in a white shirt and brown pants in a pose looking up at two light beings. The visuals always show the father and the son side by side. Generally, in almost every artistic representation, the son is on the right hand of the father. None of the accounts say that. That is a a symbol we've adopted to put the son on the right of the father. All the accounts say is, and here's what's interesting, they don't say they appeared at the same time. Joseph says one being appeared and spoke to him. And then shortly thereafter, another being came to his side. Or in another account, two other accounts mentioned that it was not a simultaneous appearance. Church videos over the years also show a green and leafy grove. After I retired into the place where I had previously designed to go, Joseph Smith says he went to pray in early spring. Finding myself alone. And when I was there in March, the trees and ground were brown and barren. The leaves don't actually start shooting out until the month of May. There's a reason why we have the colloquial saying that a picture's worth a thousand words. Because sometimes we take in a picture in place of a thousand words. It's quicker, it communicates different, it can communicate the unspoken. That's the power of art. Uh, It's also the drawback of art is that then sometimes we adopt the artistic expression as the official interpretation. But art does help people connect with the place where the restoration began. New York Area General Authority 70 Elder Mark Clay and his wife, Sister Kathleen Clay, are able to go to the Sacred Grove often. But they know many church members have never been, nor can they make the trip. Really, wow, look at what happened. Look at the change that that he brought. for a simple young man, it's just a great experience. It's amazing. And doing what President Nelson asked us to do to prepare for this conference, we can have that testimony renewed, I would think. I yes, yeah. yes. We went over to Scotland for a business trip at one time, and we went to a fast and testimony meeting there. And it was amazing to me, the testimony, the strong testimonies of the people there who never were never going to meet the prophet or... Um, the apostles, and their strength and testimony of knowing the prophet was a prophet and and it was true, um, the gospel was true, and how they were living their lives. BYU church history professor Stephen Harper sees that worldwide impact as well. I gave a, a fireside on the first vision in Springville, Utah, 
And after it was over, a sister from Taiwan came up and talked to me and told me about how she came to believe in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ by listening to Joseph Smith's testimony, uh, listening to the story of his first vision. And it meant everything to her that the gospel had been restored, the gospel of Jesus Christ through Joseph Smith. Okay, to seek and receive revelation is our restored way of knowing the most important truths. And this sister was saying, not only did that work for Joseph, it worked for her. And I've become aware of lots of people like that. I asked Spencer McBride about it as well. He hosted the Joseph Smith Papers podcast on the First Vision and is a church historian. I have received a lot of emails, a lot of messages on social media with people wanting to share their experience with the story of the First Vision. And as a historian, I'm very aware that this is a story about um, a young boy in western New York uh, in 1820. It's informed by the world he knew. But it's a story that, that transcends time and space. People all over the world hear this story and it means something to them. Jeanette Cooney from Virginia visited the Sacred Grove the same day I did and knew how blessed she was to be able to go. But physically being there was one thing while her testimony is so much more important to her. Your own home, you can have those same experiences. It doesn't have to be where Joseph Smith saw Heavenly Father and Jesus. I think that's a big takeaway for us, is that we can have that same spirit in our home, and we can receive revelation for our own lives, just like Joseph Smith did. Revelation in small and simple ways. Jennifer Doyle, who made that hooked rug of the first vision to hang in her home, says others can find different ways to teach about the first vision. It doesn't have to be this big trip or this big thing. This one big thing that you do, like, oh, we've created this big weekend, this powerhouse weekend to learn about the prophet Joseph Smith and the restoration and what we know about Jesus Christ. I think parents have a really unique opportunity to say, one sentence or one thing that they've read from the Book of Mormon that day or one one thought that they've had or one thing that they love about the whole restoration of the gospel and the story of it, that actually I, I believe that is what makes the most difference for children. Our Historic Sites Division does a lot to help people access the, the sites and, and experience of the Grove remotely as much as possible, for instance. Um, church videos artwork. It all kind of speaks to the how people experience the Grove, and then they share that with others. But I think anyone can hear this story and connect with it, even if they're thousands of miles away. Yeah. I think one reason the prophet gave us such a long period of time is because you can't just download everything you know in one sitting. It's, it's little bit on little bit on little bit. One of the reasons why the First Vision is so powerful for all of us as Latter-day Saints is because in one story, it's almost the archetype of our entire lives. We're, you know, we're trying to overcome darkness and forces that oppose us. We're trying to reach to heaven. We feel weak and insignificant, but God reaches out to us. Sometimes we're a little afraid, but he tells us he loves us, knows us, opens heaven up to us, helps us to understand things. It started with Joseph, yes. but it, but it, We'll say it ends with us, but individually it does. It, it carries back into our own lives. 
That day, in early spring 1820, when Joseph Smith had a question he needed answered, got that answer, and then the restoration began of the gospel in the latter days. Thank you so much for listening to this special hour of the Bicentennial of the First Vision. I'm Mary Richards in Palmyra, New York, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM at 1160 AM. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.